0: Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is Episode 122, Ursuline Riots Remastered. Hi, I'm Nikki.
1: And I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about the riots and destruction of Charlestown's Ursuline Convent, which we first touched on back in January of 2017. This episode touches on themes of xenophobia, anti-immigrant prejudice, and religious intolerance, lessons we can all learn from today. But before we talk about the burning of the convent, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club pick and our upcoming historical event.
0: Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Doug Most's The Race Underground, Boston, New York, and the incredible rivalry that built America's first subway. Boston and New York are locked in a centuries-old competition, and I think it's clear where we stand on the matter. Boston is the hub of the universe, and New York is not. The book's publisher provides detail on how this book digs into one of the many, numerous, plentiful examples of a time when Boston won. In the late 19th century, as cities like Boston and New York grew more congested, the streets became clogged with plodding, horse drawn carts. When the Great Blizzard of 1888 crippled the entire Northeast, a solution had to be found. Two brothers from one of the nation's great families, Henry Melville Whitney of Boston and William Collins Whitney of New York, pursued the dream of his city digging America's first subway, and the great race was on. The competition between Boston and New York played out in an era not unlike our own, one of economic upheaval, life-changing innovations, class warfare, bitter political tensions, and the question of America's place in the world. The race underground is peopled with the famous, like. Boss Tweed, Grover Cleveland, and Thomas Edison, and the not-so-famous, from the brilliant engineers to the countless sandhogs who shoveled, hoisted, and blasted their way into the earth's crust, sometimes losing their lives in the construction of the tunnels. Doug Most chronicles the science of the subway, looks at the centuries of fears people overcame about traveling underground, and tells a story as exciting as any ever ripped from the pages of U.S. history. The Race Underground is a great American saga of two rival cities, their rich, powerful, and sometimes corrupt interests, and an invention that changed the lives of millions. Prolific author of Boston history Stephen Puleo reviewed the book for the Boston Globe at its publication in 2014. His commentary includes, A fine storyteller, most also deftly sets the larger context by exploring other broad themes. The invention and harnessing of electricity, which set the stage for powering America's first subway. The influx of European immigrants, who provided the labor to build both systems. The paralyzing blizzard of 1888, which convinced New Yorkers that underground train travel, not exposed elevated railways, was the way to the future, especially in the winter. With dramatic narrative flair and an easy voice, most describes the final drive to the finish line, fully chronicling the reasons why Boston emerged victorious when her subway opened successfully on September 1, 1897, seven years before New York's. As a bonus, and ultimately more important than the winner of the subway competition, Most shrewdly analyzes how underground rapid transit helped define the modern American city, and could serve as a blueprint for new modes of transportation that are still only dreams today. We'll include a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes, and while you're waiting for it to arrive, check out episode 21 for the Tremont Street subway explosion on March 4th, 1897.
1: And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, on Wednesday, March 20th at 7.30 p.m. at the Royal House and Slave Quarters. The events described as follows. From its origins in the 1750s, the white-led American abolitionist movement adhered to the principles of moral suasion and nonviolent resistance as both religious tenets and political strategies. But by the 1850s, the population of enslaved Americans had increased exponentially, and such legislative efforts as the Fugitive Slave Act and the Supreme Court's 1857 ruling in the Dred Scott case effectively voided any rights black Americans held as enslaved or free people. As conditions deteriorated for African Americans, black abolitionist leaders embraced violence as the only means of shocking Northerners out of their apathy and instigating an anti-slavery war. In her forthcoming book, Force and Freedom, historian Kelly Carter Jackson provides the first historical analysis exclusively focused on the tactical use of violence among antebellum black activists. Through rousing public speeches, the burgeoning black press, and the formation of militia groups, Black abolitionist leaders mobilized their communities, compelled national action, and drew international attention. Drawing on the precedent and pathos of the American and Haitian revolutions, African American abolitionists used violence as a political language and as a means of provoking social change. Through tactical violence, argues Carter Jackson, black abolitionist leaders accomplished what white nonviolent abolitionists could not, creating the conditions that necessitated the Civil War. Force and Freedom takes readers beyond the honorable politics of moral suasion and the romanticism of the Underground Railroad and into an exploration of the agonizing decisions, strategies, and actions of the black abolitionists who, though lacking an official political voice, were nevertheless responsible for instigating monumental social and political change. Kelly Carter Jackson is a historian and an assistant professor at Wellesley College in the Department of Africana Studies. She earned her Ph.D. from Columbia University— and her BA from Howard University. Copies of Force and Freedom will be available for purchase and signing at the event, which is free for Royal House and Slave Quarters members and $10 for non-members. While you're waiting for March 20th, check out episode 117 on David Walker's embrace of violence and violent rhetoric to lay the groundwork for abolition. And now, it's time for this week's main topic.
0: With the diversity of Boston's residents today, It's hard to imagine what Boston was like prior to 1845. It wasn't just a predominantly white city. It was white, English-descended, and Protestant. The Great Famine devastated Ireland from 1845 to 1849, with mass starvation, disease, and emigration. During the famine, about one million people died and a million more fled, causing the island's population to fall by between 20 and 25 percent. The proximate cause of the famine was a natural event, a potato blight, which infected crops throughout Europe during the 1840s. By the early 1840s, almost half the Irish population depended exclusively on the potato for their diet. In Beyond Beef, the Rise and Fall of the Cattle Culture, Jeremy Rifkin explains, The Celtic grazing lands of Ireland had been used to pasture cows for centuries. The British colonized the Irish, transforming much of their countryside into an extended grazing land to raise cattle for a hungry consumer market at home. The British taste for beef had a devastating impact on the impoverished and disenfranchised people of Ireland. They were pushed off the best pasture land and forced to farm smaller plots of marginal land. The Irish turned to the potato, a crop that could be grown abundantly in less favorable soil. Eventually, cows took over much of Ireland, leaving the native population virtually dependent on the potato for survival. When Irish immigration began in earnest in 1845, Boston was turned upside down. By the time of the 1850 census, first- and second-generation Irish-American immigrants made up 60,000 of about 130,000 Boston residents, almost half the population and while we're such an Irish-identified city today, those refugees who practiced a different religion and spoke another language were not welcome. Most of the Irish immigrants during this period were poor, unskilled laborers from rural backgrounds who settled in the slums of the North End, the South Cove, and Fort Hill. Many were not only destitute, but weakened by typhus contracted on the coffin ships that had brought them. To contain the health risk, A quarantine hospital and almshouse were built on Deer Island, where hundreds of immigrants died and were buried in unmarked graves. To make matters worse, a cholera epidemic swept through Boston in 1849. The North End Irish, living in crowded, unsanitary conditions on the waterfront, were the hardest hit. Over 500 died. Boston health inspectors described the typical Irish slum as A perfect hive of human beings, without comforts and mostly without common necessaries. In many cases, huddled together like brutes, without regard to age or sex or sense of decency. But Boston was
1: about to experience transformative development and expansion with the filling of the Back Bay. Within a generation or two, boosted by the booming job market for laborers, the Irish immigrants arrived in the middle class. Our story today takes place before this transformation when the Irish made up just a sliver of Boston's population and were the victims of a prejudice that went back centuries, back to England, and back to the European wars of religion in the 16th and 17th centuries. Our tale involves another group of immigrants, the Ursuline Order. The Ursulines are a religious order in the Catholic Church dedicated solely to the education of girls. They were founded in Italy in 1535 by Angela Merici, who was later sainted. Originally, she envisioned a group of women who lived amongst the communities they served, without any special distinctions like wearing the habit. However, after Marici's death, the church hierarchy was uncomfortable with the idea of women with that amount of power and autonomy. By 1572, the order had agreed to reinvent itself as a cloistered order, living in convents with strict vows. The Ursuline Order was the first group of nuns to arrive in North America. The first group set up a school in Quebec in 1639, then another group came to New Orleans in 1727, becoming the first Roman Catholic nuns in what's now the United States. Their school in New Orleans is considered the oldest surviving building in New Orleans and in the entire Mississippi Valley. While priests were banned from early Massachusetts on pain of death, Catholicism became officially tolerated with the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. As Boston slowly became more hospitable to Catholics, an official diocese was founded in 1808. Pretty soon thereafter, an Order of Ursuline Nuns was established in Boston in 1820. Ironically, it seems that most of their students were Protestant children. According to one source, there were 47 girls enrolled in the Ursuline Secondary School in 1834, only six of whom were Catholic. With so few good options for educating girls at the time many of the upper-class Protestant families who could afford it sent their daughters to be taught by the Ursulines.
0: The convent was originally located on Franklin Street at Downtown Crossing. Within a few years, though, the convent was bursting at the seams. When they relocated, they went outside of the city. It's a little bit convoluted to describe where the Ursuline convent ended up moving to. They moved to a place called Mount Benedict in Charlestown, But that part of Charlestown is now known as East Somerville, after Somerville became an independent town in 1842. And Mount Benedict was known for decades as Plowed Hill. It was the site of skirmishes during the Revolution. We believe that the name was only changed to Mount Benedict at the time that the Ursulines moved there in 1827. Like Fort Hill in Boston and the top 60 feet of Beacon Hill, Most of Mount Benedict was cut down in the late 19th century and used to fill in the salt marshes where the Assembly Square Mall is today. The Ursulines built a grand campus. A former student would later describe that nearly the whole of Mount Benedict was enclosed for the use of the convent. There was a lodge, a bishop's house, several terraced walks, and grounds tastefully laid out for the recreation of the pupils. No such elegant and imposing building had ever been erected in New England for the education of girls. Picturesque on the summit of the hill, its many-windowed façade glowing in the light of the setting sun, it was a sightly object to the good citizens of Boston returning from their afternoon drive in the suburbs. Despite the Order's success, this was a time of intense anti-Catholicism. Rumors swirled around Boston and Charlestown about the strange rituals and terrible abuse suffered behind the walls of the school. Building on the inherent biases of Yankee Bostonians, people began to murmur that the nuns were held captive as forced labor, that children were terribly abused and baptized into the Catholic Church against their will and the desires of their parents, and always in the background, there was a subtle implication of lesbian sexual abuse.
1: A woman named Elizabeth Harrison was the spark that lit the powder keg in her story. She was a music teacher and a 13-year veteran of the Ursuline Order, practicing under the religious name Sister Mary John. On the night of July 28, 1834, she left the convent and visited the local Cutter family. A Boston Evening Transcript article from August 12, 1834, prints Mr. Cutter's recollection of her visit to his family and what ensued. On the afternoon of Monday the 28th instant, the lady in question came to my house, appeared to be considerably agitated, and expressed her wish to be conveyed to the residence of an acquaintance in West Cambridge. I lent her my assistance, and on the succeeding day I called with the purpose of inquiring for the causes which had induced her to leave the institution. I was informed that she had returned to the nunnery, in company with the bishop, with a promise that she should be permitted to leave in two or three weeks, if it was her wish. Since that time— Various rumors have been in circulation, calculated to excite the public in mind, and to such an extent as induced me to attempt to ascertain their foundation. Accordingly, on Saturday the ninth, I called at the nunnery and requested of the Superior an interview with the lady referred to. I obtained it and was informed by her that she was at liberty to leave the institution at any time she chose. The same statement was also made by the Superior, who further remarked that, In the present state of public feeling, she should prefer to have her leave. It was said that the sister was out of sorts, bedraggled, and possibly incoherent. Maybe it was a crisis of faith, or maybe it was a bit of a breakdown brought on by the workload of a young teacher. Either way, the next morning a bishop and the mother superior arrived and convinced her to return to the convent, explaining away her condition as a brain fever.
0: Anti-Catholic activists had a field day with the story saying that she was being held against her will and tortured at the convent. As the story spread through the surrounding community, it seems to have gotten jumbled together with the fantastical tales of abuse told by another young woman in 1832. Rebecca Teresa Reed would eventually turn those rumors into a tell-all about six months she spent at the convent, entitled Six Months in a Convent. The book highlighted the nun's unusual practices such as punishing themselves with corsets placing stones in their shoes and eating meager rations in poorly heated quarters though it wasn't published until 1835 the story certainly circulated boston in 1834 with that backdrop the community quickly became convinced that the convent was a depraved place holding children and women captive and subject to terrible abuse less than 2 weeks later placards appeared all over Boston on Sunday morning, August 10th, saying, To the selectmen of Charlestown, gentlemen, it is currently reported that a mysterious affair has lately happened at the nunnery in Charlestown. Now, it is your duty, gentlemen, to have this affair investigated immediately. If not, the truckmen of Boston will demolish the nunnery Thursday night, August 14th. Taking the warning to heart, A delegation from the Charlestown Selectmen, including Mr. Cutter, went to the convent to investigate on August 11th. They were admitted by the Mother Superior and interviewed Sister Mary John. She testified that she was free to leave at any time, but happy where she was. The committee found no evidence of torture, enslavement, or sexual abuse, and left satisfied. The Selectmen planned to write an editorial for the next day's paper, but in the meantime, a mob formed around the convent that night. A crowd of dozens of agitators gathered outside the gates, lighting bonfires and shouting angrily for the imprisoned nuns to be released. As the crowd grew angry and noisy, they were joined by hundreds more, community members and curious passers-by. Nuns came to the window to proclaim that they did not need rescue, but the protesters paid them no mind. At one point, The mother superior seems to have really stirred up the crowd by shouting angrily, The bishop has 20,000 of the vilest Irishmen at his command, and you may read your riot act till your throats are sore, but you'll not quell them.
1: That was the straw that broke the camel's back. The rioters broke down the gates, charged up the hill, and kicked in the doors and windows of the convent building. As the nuns and their students fled out a back door and hid in the surrounding gardens and orchards, The rioters began trashing the building, setting fires, desecrating the altar, and even breaking open tombs. A man named John Bazell, who was one of the ringleaders, later testified, The first thing that was done after getting in was to throw the pianos, of which nine were found, out of the windows. The mob crowded in in such numbers that it was with great difficulty that I got upstairs to the chapel, which was located on the second floor. When I finally succeeded in forcing my way into the chapel, I found a fire about the size of a bushel basket blazing merrily in the middle of the floor. It was made of paper, old books, and such other inflammable stuff as they could lay their hands on, and soon spread in all directions. When the main building was enveloped in flames, we went for the cookhouse and the ice house, which were separate buildings, and set them on fire. At a little distance from the main building stood what was called the Bishop's Lodge, where he had a library and where he used to keep his robes, etc., After the ice house was fired, I started for this lodge, and I was the first to get in. I picked up a heavy desk and was giving it a swing to heave it out the window when the mob arrived and, not knowing I was within, smashed the glass. The broken pieces were thrown violently into my face, cutting many bad gashes from which the blood flowed freely. However, I wiped my face and, getting out the bishop's robe, put it on in a spirit of deviltry. The others stripped it off my back and, winding the remnants around poles, used them as torches lighting them at the main building and firing the lodge with them. The farmhouse and barn were burned next, after which the tomb was visited to see if the body of the music teacher Mary St. John was there. The door of the tomb was broken open, and within was the body of a young girl who had evidently been dead but a day or two at most, and whom I religiously believed to this day to have been Mary St. John, although I had no positive proof of her identity. This finished the events on the hill, and after watching the flames for a while, the immense mob slowly dispersed.
0: As the fires set by Bazell and his friends swept through the campus, local fire departments arrived on the scene, but they did nothing to fight the blaze. Questions remain. Were they sympathetic to the rioters? Did some of the Yankee firefighters actually join the melee? Or were they simply afraid they'd be hurt, either deliberately by angry rioters or accidentally by the flying glass shards, furniture, and incendiaries being thrown from the building? The next morning, the convent campus lay in ruins. The mayor of Boston called a town meeting at Faneuil Hall to discuss a response, and Bishop Fenwick called a meeting of Catholic citizens to warn them against retaliation. The Boston evening transcript printed a summary of the mayor's meeting. An immense multitude assembled at Faneuil Hall in pursuance of an invitation from the mayor this day at one o'clock, although notice was given but two hours previous, to take measures relative to the riot at Charlestown. Honorable Theodore Lyman, mayor of the city, presided, and Z. Cook, Jr., Esquire, was appointed secretary. The resolutions were offered by Josiah Quincy, Jr., Esquire, who prefaced them with a few most eloquent remarks. After the resolutions were read, Honorable Harrison Gray Otis was called for, who rose, and with much feeling addressed the assembly with his usual brilliancy and elegance. On making an allusion to the good Bishop Cheverus, he was interrupted by loud and continued applause. There was an excellent feeling pervaded the vast multitude, and the resolutions were unanimously adopted, amid applause never before exceeded within the walls of Faneuil. Resolved. That in the opinion of the citizens of Boston, The late attack on the Ursuline convent in Charlestown, occupied only by defenseless females, was a base and cowardly act for which the perpetrators dissolved the contempt and detestation of the community. Resolved. That the destruction of property and danger of life caused thereby calls loudly on all good citizens to express individually and collectively the abhorrence they feel for this high-handed violation of the laws. Resolved. That we, the Protestant citizens of Boston, do pledge ourselves, collectively and individually, to unite with our Catholic brethren in protecting their persons, their property, and their civil and religious rights. Resolved. That the mayor and aldermen be requested to take all measures consistent with law to carry the foregoing resolution into effect, and as citizens. We tender our personal services to support the laws under the direction of the city authorities. Resolved. That the mayor be requested to nominate a committee from the citizens at large to investigate the proceedings of last night and to adopt every suitable mode of bringing the authors and abettors of this outrage to justice. On motion of Mr. George Bond the Committee of 28 were requested to consider the expediency of providing funds to repair the damage done to the convent. On motion of John C. Park Esquire, it was resolved that the mayor be authorized and request to offer a very liberal reward to any individual who, in case of further excess, will arrest and bring to punishment a leader in such outrage.
1: And yet a mob of thousands paraded through the streets of Boston. They tried to get to Faneuil Hall, then tried to pull down the Catholic Church in Boston. After being thwarted both times by armed militia, the frustrated mob returned to the smoldering ruins of the Ursuline Convent on the night of August 12th and rampaged over them again, burning fences, fruit trees, and anything else they could lay their hands on. A third night of violence was prevented only by posting the militia within Boston and raising the drawbridge that connected Boston and Charlestown a bridge that you can learn much more about in Episode 115. In the days and weeks after the riot, everyone in the community knew who'd been involved in the riots. In the end, 13 men were arrested, and eight of them were charged with arson and burglary, both of which were still punishable by death in 1834. Among the eight was John Bozell, who we quoted above giving self-incriminating testimony. Despite their own statements, despite eyewitness testimony... Despite all the evidence against them, all but one of the defendants was acquitted. The court at times questioned whether the sworn testimony of a Catholic could be trusted, saying that their oaths held less weight. Some of the judges went as far as allowing the defense to turn the trials into attacks on the Catholic Church itself, and almost all the juries were packed with Yankees who were predisposed to disdain Catholicism. Sister Mary John testified against Bazell. In fact, she remained in the Ursuline order for the rest of her life, so apparently she wasn't being held against her will after all. After the riot in Boston, she transferred to the convent in Quebec, where she lived out her days. Despite her efforts, Bazell was found not guilty, receiving thunders of applause by the audience in the courtroom, and then the congratulations of thousands of his overjoyed fellow citizens on the streets outside. Only one person was convicted of any crime resulting from the riot. Sixteen-year-old Marvin Massey was convicted of arson for burning the bishop's books and given a life sentence. The governor pardoned him before he served a day.
0: You would think that Massachusetts would have learned a lesson in religious tolerance from this embarrassment, but our history of anti-Catholic bias was far from over. This wasn't even the last time Protestant Yankees and Irish Catholics clashed violently in the streets. The 1837 Broad Street Riot was largely a sectarian clash, sparked after Yankee firefighters attacked an Irish Catholic funeral procession. And the 1863 draft riots in the North End began when Irish Americans believed they were being unfairly singled out for the draft, and ended with Yankee militiamen firing a cannon at a crowd of civilians, killing several people, including a 12-year-old boy. After the pace of Irish immigration increased in 1845, an ugly nativist political party called the Know-Nothings was formed. It campaigned on a platform of opposing immigration and trying to minimize the Catholic influence on American culture. The Back Bay Project, made possible off the backs of Irish laborers, held the seeds of anti-Catholicism as well. The city decided to fill in the salt marsh in the Back Bay to create a grand new neighborhood in part because so many Irish-Americans were making their home in older Boston neighborhoods. And while the city gave Protestant churches prime pieces of real estate, only little St. Cecilia's managed to get a Catholic foot in the back bay door on the very fringe of the neighborhood. It was allowed only so that the Irish domestic servants in the new neighborhood wouldn't be absent for too long when going to Mass. The hulking ruins of the Ursuline Convent itself remained in view for decades. The top of Mount Benedict had a great view of Boston, and it became a popular picnic spot. To put that in perspective, it would be incredibly tasteless to have a picnic in the shadow of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, yet Bostonians seem to have no qualms romanticizing the ruins. Only in 1875, when the Boston Diocese was building the new Cathedral of the Holy Cross, were the ruins finally removed. The remaining bricks and stones were incorporated into the new church in the South End, bringing some sense of closure to Boston's Catholic community.
1: To learn more about the Ursuline Convent Riot, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 122. We'll have links to all the articles we quoted from an 1845 romance novel that reimagines the riot through the eyes of an outraged Protestant, and Rebecca Reed's Six Months in a Convent. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and The Race Underground, this week's Boston Book Club pick.
0: But before we sign off for the week, we need to say thank you to listener Michelle S. You've heard us promote our Patreon campaign over the past few weeks, with levels of support named after Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams, some of our favorite Bostonians. Michelle is our latest Lewis Hayden supporter, which means that she's helping us offset the cost of web hosting and security, the service that hosts our podcast feed, and audio processing tools that we pay for monthly. When you support us on Patreon for as little as $2 per month, you can earn thank you gifts ranging from a Hub History sticker to a monthly live video chat with us, your hosts, to a private walking tour of the Back Bay with us as your guides. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com hubhistory or clicking on the support us link at hubhistory.com. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on this site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show.
1: That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about The Legend of the Governor's Gold.